This is The Rest is PR with Lyle Fulton and Jackie Vores. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to The Rest is PR. My name, as it will always be, I hope, barring any incident at all, is Lyle Fulton. And I'm joined, as I'm sure I always will be, by the absolutely wonderful Jackie Vores. Now, Jackie, bit of a disclaimer here. Last week, we promised our listeners that we loved Thursdays. We adored Thursdays, and Thursdays was our new home. So wouldn't you just know it? It's Wednesday evening. It's Wednesday (laughs) evening at quarter to six. We kind of really don't believe in this whole, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We're just fixing (laughs) things that are totally fine, and all sorts of things are going on like that. Yeah, we're, we're moving dates perennially. But how are you this fine Wednesday evening? I'm fine. I'm a bit sort of holiday happy ish i haven't um i i'm supposed to have packed my bag i'm leaving really early in the morning to go on a half term break with arlo and my new husband very exciting and uh yeah so i have yet to even pack the bags i have booked the taxi so that's one thing that's really good and that's why we're doing wednesday instead of thursday brilliant stuff brilliant stuff and you are obviously at, we, before we went live you told me you're off to spain at which point i replied obviously ibiza then to which she replied, I hate Ibiza. I hate Ibiza. Never in a million years am I going to Ibiza. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to do the segue this week. Jackie, listeners, is off to hopefully very sunny Spain tomorrow. We are joined this week, somewhat impromptu in a way, but I'm loving how impromptu it is, by a guest who is currently also not on our shores. Our lovely guest this week is over in France, I believe. We are joined once again, I'm delighted we are, by the absolutely fabulous Caroline Wheeler. Caroline, it's almost been too long since we've had you on the podcast. <laughs> But how are you? How are you doing this fine Wednesday evening? What are you up to in France at the minute as well? Oh, I'm great. I don't think I've ever been this relaxed since uh, for, for, for a very long time. Uh, we're in a beautiful place called Collioure, which is um, on the sort of Spanish border in the south of France. The sun has been shining, which has been fabulous to get a little bit of that vitamin D that we miss so much in England. Uh, I've got my eldest son with me, who I'm trying desperately to persuade to speak French as he's doing French GCSE, but seems completely <laughs> allergic to speaking anything other than English, which is uh, somewhat tricky. Uh, having just set up a, a one-to-one with a beautiful French girl of the same age, can you imagine? Uh, and even that did not elicit too much enthusiasm for the older <laughs> French lingo. It's amazing what us mothers do, isn't it? Because I'm taking Arlo to Valencia in Spain. We're hopefully going to go to the Great Science Park, where the the place we booked to stay in, the Airbnb there, is right in the science park. So that's where I want to take him, because he's doing Spanish GCSE. So, you know, the whole idea is that we will go over there and speak a bit of Spanish if I we were speaking Spanish, it would have been fine. It would have been fine. Luke was very happy to speak Spanish today. He did not <laughs> want to speak French today. So maybe we should send Luke to you for the yes. rest of the holiday. And abandon France. <laughs> yeah. I wish my mum had done this. You've got, you got Spanish GCSE, Spain, going to Spain. We've got French GCSE going to France. When I had both of those when I was a kid, I was lucky if I went to Milton Keynes down the corner <laughs> from where I live. Fair enough. No, I'm, I, that must be brilliant. That must be superb. And also, I mean, fair play, you know, trying to trying to get that sorted out with, with a lovely lady. I'm not going to speculate, you know, and, and you know, I'm not going to. I'm, well, I think you know, that I'm, might have been the problem. I think the nerves then set in because <laughs> uh, it was a very pretty, you know, young French lady. 
and uh yeah there was no there was no dialogue there yeah no it was very nervous no eye contact it was like sitting in a first date as a mum <laughs> yeah I empathize a bit the nerves must have set in I empathize a little bit you know sort of harking back to I've been uh listeners just uh full disclosure I've been uh I've been rightfully put in my place before we went live because I've been complaining about how old I'm getting and my back's been going and now I'm talking about oh I remember when I was that age I probably wouldn't got nervous as well but there you are Caroline we're absolutely delighted to have you on the podcast once again thank you so much for coming back on the podcast and joining us but this time last time obviously we spoke a little bit about your career as political editor of the Sunday Times and your career as a journalist and, and how you got to where you are now but this week we're delighted to be talking to you because you have written a book and it's a very very important book might I say uh, it's called Death in the Blood I suppose a really open-ended question right to begin with is can you just kind of give us a synopsis a kind of a brief overview of what the book is about and why you've written it yeah sure so it's it's the history of the contaminated blood uh, scandal well in fact I should say it's really the history of the campaign that has been waged on behalf of the victims of this particular scandal uh, in trying to bring about justice it chronicles about 50 years of campaigning, dating back to the kind of mid-70s when this issue started to emerge. And, and basically, as some of your listeners may be familiar with, um, this was an issue which um, which predominantly affected the haemophiliac community, though not exclusively. There was also uh, an issue for anybody that required a blood transfusion uh, during that particular period of time, when effectively uh, Britain did not have uh, sufficient quantities of plasma that could help clot the blood, particularly for people that had a deficiency in factor eight and factor nine, which is a coagulation factor, which helps your blood to, to, to clot so that you don't just bleed out when you have an accident or a fall or, you know, you give birth or any of those things. But in the 70s and 80s, uh, we didn't have enough of this particular uh, type of plasma. And so we started to import uh, this type of blood from the United States, often from Skid Row. So paying donors uh, who often were motivated to give blood to feed their drug and alcohol addictions, which also meant that they were often more susceptible to illnesses such as hepatitis C and also uh, latterly HIV. And we imported that blood to Britain and gave it to our haemophiliacs and also to, to, to people that were in hospital in, in need of transfusions. To date, uh, around 5,000 uh, people have been infected with deadly diseases uh, as a consequence. Uh, and more than half of those uh, that received those products have since died, which means that it is a disaster and a scandal which, you know, in terms of death toll far surpasses those kind of scandals that I think people are more familiar with such as Hillsborough or, you know, the, the Grenfell fire uh, or any of the other things that we think of traditionally as being sort of very big tragedies that have happened on these shores. But it, it wasn't just the United Kingdom. This was something uh, which happened right across the globe. But unlike in other countries like Ireland, the United States, Japan, uh, where people have been brought to justice and people have received compensation, uh, the victims in the United Kingdom are still waiting for those answers and for that uh, justice and for that compensation. It's the book itself is, I haven't finished it, but it's a very, very hard read. It's something that it's a very good read and it's very captivating and it's shocking. I think the thing is that you you literally cannot believe as the pages unfold the level of 
scandal it was and the campaigning that had to happen and was consistent and continuous over decades and you know you 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 carried that that campaign with you through your entire career didn't you when did you first hear about the scandal yeah that's right Jackie so uh, it was. It really was at the very beginning of my career. Literally, I was a completely green reporter. Had just come out of the sort of journalism school, having done my degree and then gone on to do a postgraduate course in journalism studies at Cardiff. And I'd gone back to my hometown in Birmingham to start my career on the local paper, which was a kind of traditional route at that time. And uh, I started off on a, one of the newspapers as part of the kind of Birmingham Post and Mail group, which is called the Sunday Mercury, which was the kind of, at the time, it was the kind of regional equivalent to the news of the world. It was very investigative. It was very salacious. It was very uh, red top. Uh, and uh, I think I was a couple of weeks into the job when I picked up a, a phone call, which is known in the trade as a ring-in. Uh, and often uh, this is the kind of interface between sort of journalists and the public. And, you know, quite often these ring-ins were, were, were very um, sort of random, people asking you to report, you know, school fates or telling you about, you know, uh, things that had happened nearby that they were concerned about often, you know, not particularly uh, salacious stories, but, you know, points of community interest. And I picked a phone, up a phone call from a guy called Mick Mason. He was in his mid-30s. And he told me just this most extraordinary story about how he had been infected uh, through a blood product that had been given to him uh, by the NHS as a child. And it had given him both hepatitis C and HIV. And he had recently received a letter from his local hospital warning him that he may now have also been infected with variant CJD, which in old money was mad cow's disease, which, as you can imagine, had again you know, caused great alarm because, you know, this was this was a new kind of front in this particular scandal. And and he was going to go on treatment strike. He'd now got to the point where he was so terrified every time he went to the hospital to receive treatment for his haemophilia that he now wanted a, a new recombinant uh, type of treatment, which was not readily available to anybody other than children, was more expensive and, and was something that his hospital trust was very much resisting, but you can imagine uh, his alarm. He'd only ever found out in the first place that he had HIV when they had written to him, his hospital had written to him as an 18-year-old, advising him on the best diet to pursue if you were HIV positive. And he was like, why were they sending me this sort of diet sheet? And he called up his GP and they apologised to him, said, we're, we're really sorry, Mick. We thought you knew you had HIV. And he was like, no. I didn't have a clue. Um, and they said, yes, we've known for about six months that you've got HIV. We thought somebody would have told you. You've probably got the best part of a, a year to live. Um, mm. And that was how he had first been told about his infection. So he told me this most extraordinary story about his life, the way in which he'd been diagnosed. And I kind of wondered for a long period of time whether this was some kind of strange conspiracy theorist sort of ringing me up to test my sort of newfound journalistic skills or a Machiavellian news editor that was, you know, trying to find out if I could discern between sort of fact and fiction. But after a kind of a little bit of investigating and searching the Internet to see whether this sort of story stacked up, uh, it turned out that every word of what he told me was completely true. 
and that he wasn't the only one out there. There was, in fact, legions of other people like him who had gone through very similar things. So I was 21 when that started. That was more than more than 20 years ago. And I've taken the story and the investigation to every single one of the jobs that I've done, done subsequently, both as a lobby correspondent for Northcliffe newspaper groups, working for the Hull Daily Mail, then working at the Express newspaper where I started a campaign and, and latterly at the Sunday Times. And, and throughout all of those newspapers, I've kind of interviewed different campaigners, different victims. And so the book is a compilation of all of those stories that they've told me through that sort of 20 year period using a kind of different voice for each of the chapters and for each of the kind of semi, the, the sort of half decades, and also using their voices to tell the different sort of stories around the scandal. So, so you know, the parents whose children were killed, the orphans whose parents were killed in the scandal, the wives that were infected by their partners. Every chapter has a different kind of facet of the, the scandal that has affected so many of their lives. I mean, this is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, this it is, is just crazy. It's just the yeah. individuals. It's the the uh, it was which is appalling in itself, but the knock on effect and the, you know the the wives, the families, and ultimately, I actually met some of these people at because I was lucky enough to go to the launch that was on APCO in the Strand for Caroline's book, and APCO did a great lovely launch there and we you know we we actually got to meet some of the the victims who came along to see the book be launched and to see them in person was so moving and so I mean there were literally people when Caroline was talking about how the book had come to, to pass and thanking the people that were there the people were in floods of tears mm. even my new husband who's quite stoic was, you know, he had a tear in his eye. He was just, he, he couldn't, he couldn't go. I saw Gillian Keegan crying uh, uh, in, in the, in the crowd. I mean, you know, nobody was untouched by this and I'm um, well done. Firstly, I, I mean, I'm super mm. proud of you. Yeah. I think you've just done a brilliant, brilliant job, but it hasn't been easy, has it? No, it hasn't. It hasn't been easy for a sort of multitude of reasons. One of which is that um, it was a story that was very difficult to tell to begin with, partly because of the stigma that surrounded um, people who were infected, particularly with HIV, who really found it very difficult to tell their story because of the stigma that they had been sort of surrounded by all their lives, really. So getting them to go public about it was was very difficult. The battle to get the government to show any recognition to the victims has been equally difficult, even now, despite the fact that there has been a public inquiry. And Sir Brian Langstaff, who's chaired that public inquiry, has made recommendations about compensation. The government still see very much the victims as kind of a spreadsheet. They see them in terms of pounds and pence. They don't see them as as the kind of human beings and the suffering that they have endured. They see them as something that threatens their bottom line in terms of the economic challenges that we face at the moment, which means that the um, the battle for compensation has faced just perpetual delays. You know, Whitehall, you know, has developed a kind of mentality, particularly around health scandals, that it tends to become very defensive. It doesn't want to admit or acknowledge when things have gone wrong. It likes to deflect and diffuse, which just means that, you know, these victims 
have been waiting for decades for compensation and many of them are no longer here. They are all dying now at the rate of uh, one every four days, which means that even during the course of the book, I think there were 10 main characters that I chose uh, to tell the story of the last sort of 50 years. And two of them died uh, in March and April of this year, um, which just shows you how difficult it's been to keep the momentum going when people keep dying along the way. And also, this is an extremely, and, and I say this with huge affection for, for, for many of them, this is a group of people who are extraordinarily damaged by the experience that they've had. They totally mistrust virtually everybody that they come across. You know, they have been damaged by an establishment that was supposed to have protected and safeguarded their interests and instead, you know, gave them life-limiting and you know, life-defining illnesses. And so I think even when there have been campaigners like myself, even Diana Johnson, who's the Labour MP, who has become my kind of double act in terms of raising and highlighting these issues, that there is still mistrust of us because some of the victims look at us, I think, and and they don't think that we can possibly comprehend the scale of the scandal because we haven't been affected ourselves. And so, you know, even when you try and do your best, you know, we, we have also endured hostility from some within the the community who find it very hard to let other people in to sort of shine a light on their stories, particularly when they themselves have been battling for so long. And they're, they're almost concerned that you'll sort of take the limelight mm. uh, away from them by, by, by helping. And, you know, it, it, it's very difficult sometimes when you counter that kind of level of hostility because you know I don't think that there's anybody that's out there for themselves to make a name for themselves out of this it's all been done because we've all been so struck and so horrified by the magnitude and scale of the scandal but I think with anything that is as raw as this and I, I can't think of anything that could be rawer than what this group of individuals have been through mm. it's inevitably going to breed kind of, you know, fears, concerns, you know, anxiety about anything anybody ever does. Mm. Um, and it's testament, really, I think, to how brilliant Sir Brian Langstaff has been, who's the, the chairman of the public inquiry, that he has managed to engender any kind of trust within the constituent of people that have been affected by this scandal. He's really, you know, gone to extraordinary lengths to win their support. And, and I think that's been extremely, extremely important. Because I think if there had been distrust, if there hadn't been a feeling that he understood what they'd been going through, I think that this would have not been the public inquiry that we've had. And I don't think would have brought about what I hope will be significant change when it concludes in the spring of this year. I mean, next year. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, absolutely. And and thank you so much again for just being so articulate and sort of telling that story as well. I mean, that's kind of leads me on to my question. Something I've been really keen to ask you about is... Obviously, it's been very, very difficult in terms of obviously some of the you mentioned it, some of the hostility you've had from some of the people's whose stories you're there to tell. It strikes me that when you got that phone call all those years ago, you as someone who you know studied journalism, who was keeping up to date on current affairs and news stories as best you possibly could as part of your training, as part of your becoming a journalist, for you to have sort of discovered this story surely spoke to the fact that it was just such an unknown thing. Like no one, again, myself included, like I just wasn't aware of just the sheer scale of this and and just how bad it had gotten. And what it strikes me 
as having happened is that you've given the victims of this you know scandal this this tragedy really this disaster a, a real voice it's a bit of a kind of a personal question to yourself like what toll has that taken on you how, how has it been for, for you to kind of as it, and by the way you know only sort of tell us you know what you're what you feel comfortable telling us but like it strikes me that this is obviously a story that you know day in day out you know you were investigating it you were working with the victims you were working on telling their story as best and as authentically as you possibly could and then you go and write the book to kind of you know push it back up again as it were and kind of tell their story in, in a way that you feel comfortable doing I mean how has that been for you every day to have to write you know about these things again and go back through it and, and how have you been supported in doing that it's never it's never easy like writing these stories you know it's as difficult to read them as it is to write them and you know th th there is a little bit of you you know after you've kind of heard the stories a, a number of times you sort of know what's coming you know which sounds difficult but th the aim of the book was to to not get to a point where people sort of felt that they'd been so anaesthetized by the horror and the trauma that they were still listening and I think one of my fears has always been with doing this scandal that and, and trying to expose the scandal is that it is just so you know relentlessly horrifying and dreadful that I was worried that the more people read about it they'd kind of almost become blasé about it and mm -hmm. and for me, it's never we I've I've never got to that point. You know, every time I've heard a new story, a new twist in the scandal, it's always kind of pulled at my heartstrings and sort of touched me, you know, deeply because it just it unleashes such anguish that we're still waiting and still, you know, holding out for such hope for for change. Really, that people will suddenly wake up to this and start doing something about it. I mean, the toll for me, yeah, writing it is is really difficult. You know, there, there, there's no two ways about it. Putting it on paper, joining up the dots, you know, uh, reflecting on the stories and the magnitude of the way in which it has kind of shattered people's lives. You know, as I was saying before, the fact that it's, you know, it's not just the affected, it's the effect that it's had on all these people's families as well. You know, I've spoken to orphans who literally ended up homeless as a consequence of both their parents being being killed by this sort of scandal one after the other. You know, families where, you know, the entire generation was was wiped out. You know, the, this one of the stories we tell in the book is about seven brothers sick to a haemophiliacs, five of whom are now dead. You know, the impact that that must have had on their, their sister, you know, their mother, you know, it's all just, you know, in incredibly, incredibly hard to kind of comprehend, really, I think. And at the same time, these are people that all knew each other. You know, often they were people that were going to the same hospitals, being treated by the same doctors. And they knew when those within their communities were dying, they were often going to their funerals. And I think that's been the tough thing, has just been the number of times where there have been funerals for the, the victims, even, even ones that you can't go to um, yourself, but you're just aware that this is still going on. And I think that's where the desperation comes from, is just, you know, how long can this continue to go on? And and I think that's that's the anger, that's the rage, that's the bit that's difficult to comprehend, not just the horrific stories that, you know, break your heart. It's the rage that they're still suffering and people know they're suffering and are not, you know, are not kind of stepping up and doing anything about it. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I witnessed you writing this book 
And, you know, I would see you at the end of a day and and I could see not only that it was, it was exhausting for you, I could tell that, but it was actually such a huge responsibility that you felt on your shoulders of telling the story in the, in the, in the best way possible for everybody thinking about everybody who is affected. And that's, that's something that's, you know, testament to, to your great feeling for all the people involved and empathy for all the people involved. Because as you say, none of us can actually imagine the horrors of this and to go through something like this, but you know, you've seen it. The interesting thing that, uh, you know, watching this all unfold and watching the book launch, normally if somebody launches a book, it's often a joyous thing. It's a conclusion of months and years sometimes of work. And for me, this launch felt like the start again, the representation of these facts to keep the story alive, to keep the campaign going. Um, so I found that very unusual. How did you cope with just going and doing the normal promotions that people would do for a <laughs> book launch, but it not being like a book launch, if that makes any sense. Well, I mean, firstly, just to, to go back to your original point about responsibility, that the responsibility is the thing, I guess, that kind of still keeps me awake at night is have I done a good enough job? You know, have I told the story in the way that they would want it to be told? Have I presented it in a way that does the story justice? And And that, you know, has always been at the kind of forefront of my mind when sort of promoting the book as well because like normally as as you say when you write a book it's the kind of conclusion of a kind of of a, a process and and we're not there yet and also I think it's also often your story and and that's what's been so difficult about this is it's partly my story but I didn't ever want it to be my story I wanted it to be their story and so telling somebody else's story particularly when it's a it's something that's actually happened. It's not fictional. It's fact. It is really, really tricky. And and the only way that I could really kind of cope with the sort of promotional side of it, given that we we, we can't be euphoric yet, we can't talk about the victory of the campaign because we, we haven't got there yet, was to treat it as the next stage in the campaign. And so to use the book launch really to kind of relaunch the agenda, as you were saying, which was why when we had the book launch at APCO Worldwide, which is a, a sort of PR, another PR firm in London, um, who kindly offered to support it, we turned it into a campaign rally. So mm. it wasn't me sort of speaking endlessly and wanging on about the book. We started off with a speech from Diana Johnson, who's the Labour MP I was talking about, who helped bring about the public inquiry with me, who is the chairman of the APPG on haemophilia and on contaminated blood. She spoke passionately about what needed to happen next. We then had Penny Mordaunt, the Conservative MP and the current Commons leader, who was also talking about the urgency at which the government now needs to pick this up to actually bring about the compensation for the survivors of this scandal. And it concluded with Andy Burnham, the Labour MP, finally had his eyes open to this particular scandal and has subsequently been a stalwart in the campaign to bring about justice. And, you know, I kind of had to apologise to people at the book launch to kind of say, you know, I'm sorry you thought you came to book launch. Actually, what you came to was a political rally because actually that's that's the only way that I feel at this stage comfortable to talk about the book, which is about, you know, raising the profile, bringing the stories back into light, keeping the heat on the government ahead of the public inquiry coming back 
next spring and just really trying to keep pushing it up the hill um, so that we get to where we need to get to when the inquiry's findings are back. But yeah, not a kind of, yeah, not a textbook, but launch, I not don't a think. Not a, not a glitzy one. And pretty one, much yeah. that's been the message in all of the PR. You know, we've, I've done Radio 4 and I did a, a piece of writing for The Big Issue and I did something for The Eye and obviously it was serialised in the Sunday Times as well. But the emphasis of all of that writing was all about saying this is a book that still has a significant chapter missing. Which is incredible. And do you plan on updating? I think this was a question you got actually at the book launch itself. Do you plan on on bringing out, I think somebody said, when the paperback comes out, will will you update it? Hopefully with the next stage, which is hopefully... The, the compensation given to the victims and the justice that those victims so rightly deserve being meted out. Yeah, that's the plan. So the plan is to bring out a paperback in the spring that will probably or hopefully come out shortly after the public inquiry's findings have been delivered so that we can sort of update it and reflect really particularly on the conclusions about where we've got to. I mean, fingers crossed, Um, that we don't then have a general election hot on the heels of the public inquiry's findings coming out. That's my greatest fear, is that we end up in a situation where the inquiry comes out, the government doesn't respond, we go headlong into a general election, we potentially see a change of government, and that government, as it comes in, then has to review everything again, Mm. um, leading to yet further delays. I mean, that would be the real kick in the teeth. But yeah, the plan is to to update with Sir Brian Lancaster's final recommendations when they come out. Um, And sadly, you know, there there will be more chapters, There there will be more stories of those that have died. And, you know, some of the the things that have subsequently happened, even since the book itself was published, the um, the lady called Sue Gorman, who was absolutely integral to the campaign, um, she was the press secretary to Tainted Blood. Um, her husband had died a few years previously from hepatitis-related illness. Um, she herself died uh, only a couple of weeks ago, which is a kind of another chapter, really, of the the story which is again about the the impact that this scandal has on has on the widows and widowers of those that have died and you know I don't think you can ever talk about the the kind of effects of it on other family members uh, you know enough because you know these are people that have never had any kind of compensation and this is what Sir Brian Langstaff is now recommending that everybody that was affected by it both mentally and physically receive some kind of support and compensation and if he manages to achieve that he will have done an amazing thing no it's, i think it, it's all all credit to him and all credit to you and all credit to people like sue gorman and diane and what do you do that comes next i mean how how do you this this whole campaign for me seems to have also opened you've kind of walked the walk in a way because you're a political reporter, political journalist of great integrity and great experience and very well held amongst all of your colleagues and peers and politicians, as I've seen. And you've probably seen how the machinations of government work through the lens of this whole campaign. What next for you, Caroline? Really hard. I mean, I don't think you'll ever stumble across a scandal as big as this one. I mean, this one, I I never intended to write a book. It was never anything that I had any great, desperate passion to do. Um, In many ways, the book kind of came to me. uh, Somebody approached me about writing it, having 
seeing the interest and and the the longevity of the campaign that I'd been involved in. I mean, there's nothing else that I have worked on that makes me sort of as passionate and as determined to fight as this. But there rightly will be other scandals along the way. And I mean, one of the great things about having written the book is that now you do get approached from time to time with people saying, this is the next scandal. Will you help me? And I think, you know, I think I said on the last time I, I came on your podcast about the stories that you're most proud of. I mean, these this is the story I'm most proud of because, you know, we really have hopefully affected change. And that doesn't happen very often in a journalist's career, particularly if you're not, you know, doing kind of 24-7 investigative journalistic job. You know, a political journalist, yes, that's that's a large part of what we do do, but it's not the kind of bread and butter. We're there also to report on the kind of current events of the day. So, yeah, watch this space really I mean I think it's taught me very clearly that if you keep banging your head against a brick wall for long enough you eventually don't just knock yourself out you can actually make a dent somewhere and you know if I'm fortunate enough to ever be afforded the chance to do it again I possibly won't be quite as daunted as I was this time to kind of get stuck in but I mean I'm I'm also hopeful that this teaches us some lessons about what needs to change more generally so that we don't have these kind of big health scandals that, you know, rock Whitehall in quite the same way, that people realise that we've got to stop the establishment from being quite as defensive as it is. It's something that Theresa May also writes quite authoritatively about in her own book, about how she sees the abuse of power. Um, being executed in Whitehall in a wide range of cases because the establishment is so defensive and not able to admit when things go wrong. So I think that's that's a thread that I would like to keep developing in terms of making sure that, you know, perhaps we do need a duty of candour and perhaps looking at some of the other changes that need to be made so that these types of incidents don't happen again. I was actually going to phrase something. I mean, I totally agree with you, all of that. And it was brilliantly put. And I was actually, while you were talking there, I was thinking about asking this as a question, but I'm actually going to kind of lead a bit more with a statement, actually, because, you know, we won't get into it today, obviously, because it's not about that. But the world as it exists currently is one that's dominated by conflict domestically. Obviously, it's been that way for years, you know, politically and what have you. But obviously, you know, we can't avoid what's going on in the world right now. And it's very sad to kind of wake up to the news that that, that we're kind of met with every morning and, and, and every evening before we go to bed. The question I was going to ask is, how proud are you of the fact that this appears to have united a group of people, not just a community in terms of the victims, but also based on the roll call of MPs you rattled off there? You know, this appears to be a quite rightly a, a scandal and, and a disaster that that has united people and individuals politically and, and the question I was going to ask is how proud are you but I'm just going to say you should be incredibly proud I think that this is something that's kind of you know you've you've been able to kind of establish some some unity and obviously there's been some hostility amongst some members of that community because you know I'll caveat it by saying like you know like you said right at the top of the episode this is quite a personal thing to to talk about and obviously there is still that stigma attached to one of the diseases in particular, you mentioned HIV, and it's still stigmatized even now, which I think is is crazy, but but yet it still is. I mean, I suppose I will go with that question. I mean, you must be tremendously proud that you kind of walk into these events and and there is a unity because that's what it needs, right? It needs this kind of level of community and this level of unity to continue to fight this. That's the only way 
that you'll get justice for these victims and you'll get the compensation they deserve. Yeah, I mean, uh, I suppose in in some ways it's it's been surprising that it's taken as long as it did to kind of get that. You see, there were always brilliant, brilliant parliamentarians um, who stood that who stood up and sort of raised their head above the parapet and railed against what was going on. And what was so kind of interesting about writing the book was just that, you know, this wasn't a government of one colour that was kind of delaying progress on it. It was governments of all colours that didn't know how to manage this particular scandal. And there were often kind of, you know, real stalwarts um, within Parliament that were kind of raising this issue um, over a long period of time. And now, you know, I mean, that is really why the public inquiry came about was that, um, you know, Diana and I got together just after the 2017 general election. And um, because the DUP were then holding the balance of power, we realised that there was now a majority um, of MPs in favour of having a public inquiry um, because they'd started to put these kind of commitments into their manifestos. Um, so save for the Conservatives, we'd had statements of support for a public inquiry for all the other political parties, including the DUP. DUP which was why when Theresa May lost her majority and we had this letter that we published in the Sunday Times, which was signed by every party leader from Jeremy Corbyn um, to um, Caroline Lucas to Nigel Dodds from the DUP, even Plaid Cymru signed it. They were kind of left with no nowhere to go. So that had really been a real victory for that sort of consensus building exercise that Diana and I and other campaigners and other MPs had been pushing for for such a long time what's sad I suppose is that you know even as we face a potential change of government there still isn't that consensus um even within the Conservative Party but even when you're hearing from the opposition leaders at the moment that they are going to do the right thing because the focus is still very much on the economy and and so what we keep hearing now is that, you know, we've gone to great strides to set up the public inquiry. We've accepted the principle of there being liability for the government. That's not being argued about anymore, which it was being done for years. But what the delay is now about is that actually the public finances are in such a terrible state that we may not be able to, as a country, afford to be able to compensate these people. And that's why you're not even seeing sort of very definite statements of support, even coming from the shadow chancellor, Rachel Reeves, or the Labour leader, um, Sakir Starmer, even though the Labour Party supported a public inquiry in the first place, because they simply can't write checks, blank checks, when they don't know what the state of the finances are going to be. And I think whilst being extremely, you know, delighted that there has been this kind of political consensus that we finally reached after years and years and years that this is something that needs addressing. We still, in my view, seem to be looking at it from the wrong way around, really, which is actually, you know, that there, there, there should be and there will be no debate around compensation if the government of the day, when the public inquiry comes back, doesn't do the right thing. They'll just be dragged through the courts and it will be the lawyers that get rich. So, yeah. you know, in my mind, all that happens is that this just gets delayed. More of the victims die in destitution without any financial stability, you know. But at the end of the day, the outcome is going to be exactly the same. So we may as well get there sooner rather than later and actually, you know, do the right thing. And for the victims to actually, those that are still living, to actually be able to spend their last days in more comfort and more stability. So it makes no sense to me that even in the face of this kind of, coalition of support that we have 
um, we still haven't got to where we need to get to. And that's the sore point. That's, mm. you know, lots of pride, lots of, you know, you know, delight, you know, enthusiasm, but still kind of so disappointed that we're we're not there yet. Mm. Because even though we think we'll get there every day that there is delay, every week there is delay, there is another person that's not here. Extraordinary. I mean, it's strange. I mean, I'm I'm kind of not that they're comparable by any stretch in terms of, you know, the actual what's actually happened in the events, but I'm reminded of a new story I you will obviously both have seen it, I'm sure a few weeks back I bless her on the news of of this the, the post office accounting scandal uh, and how you know hundreds of people were you know kind of imprisoned falsely imprisoned for for inverted commas fudging the numbers and there was this kind of token offer of compensation at the time which was obviously with a view to the fact that we you know we just don't have the you know have the money and and, and that's being placed you know when we get political as always being placed that's that sort of notion is being placed in front of the welfare of of innocent people who deserve compensation deserve justice and deserve to have their concerns heard about their lives having been so adversely affected by by mistreatment and malpractice and and this is a huge huge example of that this is the example in my opinion of that because Again, you know, I, this has been brought to my attention through through speaking to you, Caroline, and, and obviously hearing about the book. And and long may that continue, by the way, the kind of making the public aware of this. I mean, actually, what I've been most struck by talking to you this evening is actually just the, the practical elements of what went on are just so shocking. The idea that it could be so just brazenly negligent, in my opinion, you're importing things over that you don't check appropriately and you don't sort of scientifically analyze and, and it's affected the, the scale of it is something that really really uh really really sort of hit me and struck me but thank you so much I, I suppose not just thank you so much for coming on and and uh and, and talking about the book but I suppose on behalf of like people like myself who I think really should know about this thank you for just bringing it to people's attention and giving these people a voice I'm sure they're very appreciative as well and I'm sure I speak for Jackie as well just the very best of investigative journalism Caroline, just the very, very best. And, you know, good luck, basically. Mm. Good luck with the next the next stage. And thank you for keeping that going. And hopefully we'll talk to you when we have got a conclusion mm. and we can sort of maybe round it off and say, it's done, it's, it's finally done. But hopefully this little podcast can keep it alive as well <laughs> um, for people to, to actually just, Read the book. Get the book. Well, Definitely. this is what I was going to ask. This is what I was going to say, because in the interest of, you know, bringing this one to a close, and Caroline, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again to, to speak to us. It's, we're so appreciative that you've come on and sort of told us about the book. We obviously, Jackie alluded to it. It's not really been your quintessential sort of glitzy book launch, but where can we get it? What's it called? Where can we get it? I'm going to ask you, the author, and I, I, I'm honoured to be able to do this. Where can we go and get it? And just let us know what the name of it is, just to confirm for our listeners as well. Oh, thank you. It's it's Death in the Blood uh, by Caroline Wheeler, and you can get it on uh, Amazon. Uh, it's currently on sale on Amazon, and also it should be in most good bookshops. Um, it's currently on sale in Waterstones and WH Smiths. Uh, and if you can't find it, uh, you can always find it on their websites as well. Both WH Smiths and Waterstones have on their websites too. And on Audible. You and on Audible, that's true. On Audible as well. That's true. Uh, read by me. Supporting. I I'm I've bought both. <laughs> read by you. Uh, read by Caroline. Read by me. Yes, it is read by me. 
Well, yeah. here's me. It's in my Waterstones basket. It's coming straight out of the Waterstones basket, <laughs> and I'm getting it on Audible. I'd rather hear Caroline. <laughs> Absolutely. That's definitely uh, happening. But thank you so much. Yeah, we'll link all of those things as well on our episode description so that our listeners know where to go and get that. And I strongly, you know, encourage our listeners to to go and check it out. Check it out might even be the wrong phrase to go to go and read it. It's a it's an urgent reader, is what I would say, because it's something that's continuing to affect so many people. And Caroline's done so brilliantly in telling the story of these victims and and will continue to tell the story as long as there is a story to tell before there is a, i'm sure there will be in the fullness of time a positive outcome but thank you so much caroline we really really appreciate having you on a few quick t's and c's listeners before we let you go on this fine wednesday evening even though you're listening to this on friday morning that's the magic of podcasting well you might be listening to it any day but it comes out obviously on friday mornings as ever if you'd like to get in touch with us you can do so info at the rest is pr.com or info at demozo.com we answer both email addresses and you can head to both websites, therestispr.com for all things podcast and demozo.com for all things being done brilliantly as ever by Demozo. You can also follow us on X at the rest is PR, capital T, capital R, capital I, capital PR. It really is that simple. And you can also message Jackie or myself on LinkedIn. We'll pick messages up on that platform as well. Jackie, I was going to say same time next week, but we have no idea now. We're moving around like nobody's business. <laughs> but next week? Uh, well, sometime. Yes. Sometime. Well, sometime. After Jackie's back from Spain. Yeah. After Jackie's back <laughs> teaching Arlo Spanish in <laughs> where it's spoken predominantly. And uh, I'm sure, Carolyn, we'd love to have you back on the podcast as well very soon if, if you'll have us. No, if you'll have me. No, that's lovely. I'm sure I'll see you soon. Brilliant stuff. Thank you so much once again. And listeners, thank you for joining us on the latest episode of The Rest is PR. But in the meantime, from Caroline, Jackie and myself, have a lovely rest of your week. It's bye for now.